Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. Okay, so we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6 tonight, and we will, um, I'm not going to do a review. The lesson from Tuesday night, pretty much the entire lesson was review. And even the new material that we looked at, we almost went through it at review speed. We really breezed through it all. It's not because it's not important. It's not because there's not stuff there to that we could camp out on for a night and, and talk about. Uh, it's mainly because uh, I try to keep these to about 15 or 16 lessons each. And really, the real reason is because I did these all as Sunday school lessons, and that's how long the semester was for the college class that I did it. So all of my notes are sort of made for these. That's that's why I quickly went to these because they were they were already made and together. And um, so my notes for the last two weeks were really just to kind of get through all those. At another time, maybe we could sit and, and park in some of those stories and kind of go through them. But what we're looking at is the storytelling of the book of Samuel. And part of the reason that you look at storytelling is to see what the storytelling is trying to tell you that maybe just reading things right off the page by themselves wouldn't necessarily speak to you. And so some of the things that you learned in high school English class are the tools that you want to bring to the Bible. We're not often taught to do that in uh, in church, unfortunately, to read the Bible like a piece of literature and sort of dissect it like a piece of literature. But it is a piece of literature. In fact, that's our first interaction with it is as a written work, is as a piece of literature. And so it only makes sense that the things that work in high school English for Shakespeare and Gilgamesh and uh, Steinbeck would work with the Bible, being able to sort of parse stories and, and uh, understand what the point of them is and who's the hero and uh, what's the theme and the moral message and those kinds of things. When we looked at Genesis, we saw it took us most of the book to really be able to see it because it's kind of a surprise, you know, two thirds of the way through the book. But we saw that Genesis ultimately is uh, about forgiveness, forgiveness as the bridge between uh, God and man, a story that would continue throughout the rest of the Bible on into the story of Jesus. As we looked at the story of the wandering and sort of the rest of the Torah, we took that further and started to think about this idea of holiness that was introduced in the very first verse of Genesis, what it means to be set apart, to be separated from darkness and from evil, and to um, follow God wherever he goes. Again, a theme that will go all the way into the New Testament with people who are trusting and following Jesus as disciples. 
in um, the Gospels, Book of Acts, and beyond. And so now here we find ourselves a little farther down the story of the Old Testament in the book of Samuel as we look at Israel going from being a family to really becoming a, a nation and a nation that is a that becomes a kingdom. And what does it mean to be kingdom people? What does it mean to be people that are part of God's kingdom? What does it mean for God to be king? And um, what does that mean for, for us? What does it mean for people who are leaders in the kingdom of God? And uh, so we'll see a lot of the themes that we've looked at in some of these other books in the story that we're looking at tonight. So you'll remember that First and Second Samuel were originally one story, the book of Samuel. And so even though we're right at the beginning of Second Samuel 6, we're over halfway through the book of Samuel. And so in a lot of the ways, we're, we're kind of about two thirds of the way through the story, which is a good time to really introduce sort of the core, key, essential theme of the story. And so uh, that's what we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 6 tonight with the return of something that's been sort of lurking in the background through most of the book of Samuel uh, during this time, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And so I uh, tempted you with the uh, Indiana Jones uh, photograph uh, that we put uh, online, but uh, we are going to be talking about the Ark of the Covenant tonight. So if you remember... I'm not going to review the entire book of Samuel, but at the very beginning, uh, the Ark of the Covenant has been in the tabernacle for 360 something years, almost 400 years. The Ark of the Covenant has been in the tabernacle, in the tent at Shiloh. They've been there so long, they've actually built up stone walls for uh, the tabernacle to be set upon. And uh, the Ark itself was on uh, stone uh, stone slab, showed you a picture of it, still there. I visited it. All that is still there to this day. It's really something else. To, to go there and to see this is where God physically was. Because remember, the top of the Ark of Covenant, the, the lid between those cherubim that are on the lid, that is where, that's the mercy seat. That's where God sits. That's God's throne. That's where he reigns is right there on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, right in the heart of the tabernacle. And so in chapter four, the evil sons of the bad priest Eli, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, they rip the tavern, uh, the ark from the tabernacle and take it before them into war as if uh, it was some trinket that would help them win, uh, win war. And in fact, they lose and the Philistines, uh, get control of the ark. Uh, the, the ark is taken from, uh, northern, uh, Israel down into, um, the Philistine territory. The Philistines send it around their territory because they're getting tumors and all kinds of other bad things happen uh, while it's in their presence. So they finally get rid of it and send it back into southern Israel. And uh, some Israelites find it. And they don't really know what to do with it because they've not been uh, properly taught what is the, the way to treat the Ark of the Covenant and what the ways of God are because they've had these, these bad priests in charge of things for some time. And so they don't know. Uh, several uh, people die because they look into the Ark, which is, you know, touching the Ark, looking into the Ark, big no-no. So finally, they send it up to some non-Israelites, um, and it lives in Kiriath-Jerim, and it stays there for 20 years. And that's the last, really, that we've heard of the Ark until now. So what's transpired in the meantime is the people have requested a king. Samuel, has, as prophet and judge of Israel, um, you know, goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, fine, give him a king. So they anoint Saul. Saul turns out to be not so great a king after all. Um, 
is weak and afraid of a lot of things, takes matters into his own hands, acts very rashly. And so his the, the hand of the Lord is removed from uh, Saul and uh, God through Samuel anoints David as king. And even though David has now been anointed king in his youth, Saul continues to reign uh, in, in the in the position as king, even though God has said that David is king. And so there's this war between Saul and David that goes on for some time. David hides out in Philistine territory, hiding from Saul. And in the chapters that we've looked at over the last two nights, we see eventually um, uh, Saul and David call a truce a number of times. And eventually Saul uh, dies and his sons die, including Jonathan, David's best friend. And so now David uh, is the, the rightful king after some politics and, and some civil war. Now uh, David is the rightful king of all of Israel. And he set up headquarters in a previously unknown town that was owned by the Jebusites. Or Jebusites have been run out. And now David has decided to make it the capital of Israel. And it's a little town known as Jerusalem. And so now that David has established his kingdom and established his reign in this capital city, of Jerusalem. Now David has decided, now it's time to bring the ark home. So that's what we're going to read in 2 Samuel chapter 6 tonight. So here's 2 Samuel chapter 6, Christian Standard Bible. You can follow along with me if you like. I'll have it here on the screen. You can read your own Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, David again assembled the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the Ark of God from Baal Judah. By the way, that's just another name for Kiriath Jerem. This is the place that the Ark has been now for 20 years. The Ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of Armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. You might remember from back in chapter 4 that the Ark has sort of a full name. And here what you're seeing is the longest name for the ark. The ark that bears the name, the name that is enthroned, uh, the name of the Lord that is enthroned between the cherubim. This is sort of the full name of the ark. And when you see this full name given to the ark, what you're seeing is full reverence given to the ark. You're seeing full importance, full understanding of what the ark really is. When Hophni and Phinehas uh, pull it from the tabernacle, it's uh, initially, while it's in the tabernacle, referred to as the, the Ark of the of the Lord of Armies that is thrown between the cherubim. But very shortly after that, it's just called, you know, the Ark and or the Ark of the Covenant. And the name sort of gets shorter, the less attention, the less uh, um, importance people give it. Now, here you see, if this is foreshadowing, remember, we're looking at the storytelling. So this is foreshadowing for this story. It's telling us how holy and important this object is, not because the object itself is holy, but because the one who sits on it is holy. The one whose name it bears is holy. It's 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 the name. It's God who is holy. And there's, uh, you should pay attention to between the correlation between uh, the name and God himself. So what's that about? Well, back when Moses, back in Exodus, asks um, you know, he's, he's telling Moses, you need to go and do this to Pharaoh. You need to go this and tell my people. And Moses is hemming and hawing and asking questions. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm not a good speaker. Get somebody else. Finally, he says, well, well, who should I say is sending me? And God says, you tell them I am send you. You tell them I am who I am or I am that I am. 
or being I be is sort of uh, what it means almost literally. And so we sing songs about the great I am. That's the name of God. I am. In fact, the the uh, what is to Jews unspeakable, the unspeakable name of God often depicted in uh, text as the four letters YHWH. Uh, some people will say a version of that name out loud. I won't for those who uh, regard that as uh, something that is unspeakable. Uh, but uh, the Jews regarded the, the very name itself so holy it was not to be spoken. And uh, you should understand that during the time of Moses, especially in the Egyptian society in particular, the, the, the Egyptians had many gods. And by knowing the true name of a god, you could invoke that god's power. And so the names that the general public knew for the gods were ways to refer to those gods, but those gods had some kind of true name. And if anyone learned the true name of that god, they could wield the power of that god. It's sort of similar. You may remember the old movie, The Mask with Jim Carrey, and he finds the mask of Loki and he puts the mask on and suddenly Loki inhabits him and he becomes the god of mischief, Loki. It's sort of that same kind of thing that if you had the name of, you know, whatever pagan god this was, then you could you exhibit the, the characteristics and the behavior of this god. And so when Moses is asking God, you know, who should I tell them is sending me? What he's essentially saying is, give me your name. Give me your name that I'll have the power to do the things that you're asking me to do. And God essentially doesn't really give him a name, but he just says, hey, uh, being I be, I am what I am. And that's all you need to know. And sort of breaks that paradigm of thinking that if I hold, you know, the name in my mouth and I, I wield the power of this God. And yet we still see sort of that same idea persistent here where we they, you see this connection between understanding the name and God himself. Uh, we sing songs about this even today when we say praise the name of Jesus, right? It's not really the name of Jesus. What we're saying is even Jesus's name, just the very mention of Jesus uh, creates a, a matter of holiness and, and sort of changes the air in the room just by the mention of his name, that there is some kind of power in even just the name. Of course, uh, you know, Jesus's uh, name has a meaning and uh, the word Christ has a meaning and, and words have meanings and, and those meanings have power. So there's uh, something to this. We call Jesus the word, right? In John chapter one, it says Jesus is the word. And um, what we're saying is that the message of God is all packed into this person of Jesus Christ, that the person of Jesus and the word, the message, they're the same thing. They're, they're intertwined. They're inseparable. You see that idea happening here. I may be spending too much long on this point, but I, I, I don't want us to breeze past verses like this. This is a huge verse of foreshadowing for the story, and I want you to see that. So we'll start again at the beginning, and now you'll see the weight of this verse when we when we hear it again remembering that we haven't even really talked about the ark since uh it went to curious jerome chapters and chapters ago so beginning again second uh, samuel 6 and verse 1 david again assembled all the fit young men in israel thirty thousand. he and all his troops set out to bring the ark of god from baali judah or curious jerome the ark bears the name the name of the lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim they set the ark of God on a new cart. Now, notice once again, right away, it's gone from being the ark that bears the name, the name of the Lord of Armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now it's just the ark of God. Why? It's telling us something. Let's see what happens. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark, 
David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. And David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah or Perez Uzzah as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. And the ark of the Lord remained in his house three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Okay, let's pause there for just a moment and talk about some things that are going on in this text. So, for many of you that have grown up in the church, uh, you're probably familiar with this story, but you're probably familiar because it's been used in the context very similar to when we looked at the story of Nadab and Abihu back in Leviticus. Um, the way I was always, whenever this story was taught, what I was always taught was you better do exactly what God tells you to do or he's going to strike you dead. Now, that cannot be theologically true because all day long, many of us are sinning and doing things that uh, God specifically asked us not to do, and yet he doesn't kill us. So there must be maybe some nuanced point to take from this story. So let's look at that. So we have Uzzah here, and Uzzah dies because he touches the ark. Now, we know back from earlier in the Torah that anyone who touched the ark was to be put to death. And you see God doing that here. But <clears throat> so the, the right punishment would have been for him to be, have been put to death by the priests and such, right? Well, nobody was going to do that. No one was obeying the law. Nobody, nobody knew what the law was. No one was doing the right thing. God had to take it into his own hands to take Uzzah's life because no one else was going to do it. Why? How could you know no one else was going to do it? Well, because in this story alone, there's lots of other commands of the Lord broken before we even get to Uzzah. And no one does anything about those. So you'll notice again, let's go back to the text. Uh, right in the very beginning, after it gives us the full name of the Ark of God, right in verse 3, it goes right back to the Ark of God. And it says they set it on a new cart to transport from Abinadab's house in curious Jerem. Now, that is an important point not to skip over. How was the Ark of the Covenant meant to be transported? Again, if you go back to those same scriptures where it says not to touch the Ark, what you'll find is uh, the way to carry the Ark is on poles. That's part of the design of the Ark is that these poles could be slid in through the gold rings and uh, it could be carried without anyone having to touch the ark. In fact, the only person who saw the ark was the high priest. And whenever the tabernacle moved, the high priest would go in and would cover the ark. And it was covered with two or three different kinds of coverings. Uh, there was, if I remember correctly, there was like a, a goat skin and then like a, like a porpoise skin, like a leather that went over it. And so by the time the, the, somebody was picking up and carrying the wooden poles, and this, this could only be done by a Levite, by the time someone was carrying it on the, on the wooden poles, the ark was covered and no one could even look at it. So the only person who ever really even got to look at the ark was the high priest. No, that was only once a year when he went in to uh, give the sacrifice uh, of atonement. 
Uh, I'm writing a, a novel about Bezalel. Bezalel and Oholiab, I've talked about before in these lessons, were the two men that um, designed and constructed everything for the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant. And they did it by, by Lord's plans, by the Lord's designs. But they were filled with the Spirit of the Lord, not only to be able to make the objects, but to be able to teach other people how to serve. The two of them alone did not make everything, but they they taught and guided everyone how to do it. And uh, so I've always thought, what an interesting story. Here you have Bezalel, who makes the Ark of the Covenant, and it's maybe the masterpiece of any kind of art in the whole universe. It's the seat of God, you know? And uh, he, as soon as he makes it, see, Bezalel, he's from the tribe of Judah, He's not a Levite. So all of these things that he makes for the tabernacle, as soon as they are consecrated and blessed and the Lord comes down and fills the tabernacle with all of his glory, as soon as that happens, Bezalel never sees any of these things ever again. Never even sees them. Never touches them. Never sees them. Can't show them to other people. In fact, Bezalel was most likely over the age of 20, meaning he died in the wilderness along with that entire generation um, it's a very fascinating story to me. That's why I'm writing a novel about this character of Bezalel. He really fascinates me. Um, but I've thought a lot about this, and I've, I've thought about these things here. And so one thing that I remember is that the ark must be transported by being carried on poles. Well, what are they doing here in the scripture? Look again what they're doing in the scripture. They put it on a new cart. Now, you might give them a little bit of credit because at least they put it on a new cart. It's kind of like when the bride uh, comes uh, walking down to get married and she's walking on a on a lace, uh, whatever, that nobody's ever walked on before, right? It's this, this idea of cleanliness, of purity, of holiness. Holiness. Um, so maybe we'll give them a few points credit for that, but it shouldn't be on a cart, right? And uh, it, apparently it's uh, we don't see that it's covered in any kind of way. We just see that it's there and that everyone's around it looking at it. Obviously, Uz is able to, able to touch it in a quick manner as it's falling. He's able to put his hand on it. Uh, I don't see him slipping his hand up under a couple of coverings or anything. So apparently everyone's able to see it. We know that um, when it first arrived in Curious Jerem, people opened it and looked at it. So obviously it's not covered in any kind of way. Uh, I don't think Hophni and Phineas would have carried it covered into battle, um, given that they thought it was some sort of trophy or trinket to, to march before them, right? They would have liked this big glinty golden box, you know, um, sort of like we see in, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in, in the, the, the Bible etching of the rays shooting out of the Ark, you know? Um, so it doesn't appear that the Ark was, was covered in any kind of way. And they put it on this cart, so it's not being transported by hand, but instead it's being put on a cart. That's something that should not have happened. And yet God doesn't strike anybody dead at this point, even though they're clearly disobeying his commands about how the ark is to be treated. So um, then we go on and we see that the reason Uzzah puts his hand on the ark is because the, it, apparently he's trying to steady it, meaning it's about to fall off of this cart. Well, why? Because the oxen stumbled. Okay, well, why did they stumble? It's possible they just stumbled on rocks coming down the hill. But think about what's happening here. David has finally been triumphant over Saul. David is finally king of the nation of Israel. This is a celebration. And first and foremost, this is a military and government celebration. First and foremost, this is about David being king. And for David, having the ark being brought to Jerusalem, at this moment, for him, this is about the, the nail in the coffin, I'm finally the king. This is about David being king. This is not about the Lord being king. So um, 
what's probably happening here is everyone is dancing and, and carousing and, and playing music and everything as, as the arc is going on. Probably they're just going too fast. Probably they're trying to race back home. Big ticker tape parade. You know, as David brings home the trophy. And the arc going too fast, the cart going too fast. It stumbles and Uzzah puts his hand on it. And when Uzzah touches it, this is the last straw. So just like we looked at with Nadab and Abihu, when you look at the text, you see that there's much more going on than someone simply, uh, I mean, the way I'm, I was taught the Nadab and Abihu story was maybe that even Nadab and Abihu just sort of ignorantly did something like they, maybe they didn't even do it on purpose, but they just did it wrong. And so God killed them. When you look at the text, you can see there's some nefarious things happening uh, in the story. They appear to be naked. They appear to be drunk. Uh, who knows what all was going on, but certainly was awful. We see a lot of those kind of things that Nadab and Abihu were doing going on in Hophni and Phineas's life. They were doing terrible things. God didn't kill them. Uh, eventually he did, but he didn't right away. So why does God strike Uzzah in this way? Well, when God defines himself to Moses, what does he tell him? He says that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, right? But that he won't let the guilty go unpunished. What the Lord tells us about himself is that he's patient, that he will endure in hopes that people will change, that people will learn, that people will become more holy, but that he does draw the line. And that happens with each one of us at the end of our life. But in situations like this, just like we looked at with the Nadab and Abihu story, when there are people who are in positions of power and the entire faith community is looking to them to see how to behave, how to act, how to be holy, what to treat as reverent and what to treat as flippant. When, when the whole community sees David being flippant with the ark, sees Uzzah and Ohio being flippant with the ark, when Uzzah touches the ark, God finally says, enough, and strikes Uzzah dead. Well, Paul, is that really what's going on here? Well, let's see what happens after God does that. So one of the things that we looked at in storytelling back in uh, the, especially the, the Genesis series is this idea of chiastic structure. And so modern storytelling is beginning, middle, end. Right, you set up a scenario and there's a big confrontation and then the confrontation resolves in some kind of way. Old Testament storytelling is very similar, but it's more beginning, middle, beginning. Meaning what you see happen at the beginning, something will come along to change the way we look at things. And then the same thing will play out again, but it will be different somehow because of that thing, because of that crux, because of that chi, that X, that uh, the Greek letter chi, because of that, that, that thing that changes everything right in the middle, that focal point. Now, the same thing can happen, but it's different. We saw it in the story of the Tower of Babel. is a perfect example of something that is perfect chiastic structure. Uh, as the story plays out, it plays out in reverse order after God comes down. We see a similar thing happening here. We see David going after the ark, but then because of the way it is treated in an unholy manner, God strikes Uzzah dead, and that changes everything. So let's see how it changes everything by going back to the story. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we'll go on and we'll skip now. Uh, notice, too, that in verse 7, it says, God struck him dead, talking about Uzzah, God struck him dead on the spot for his, for his disobedience. Well, what it says is for his irreverence, because he did not treat uh, the ark with proper reverence. And notice all throughout the story, it's referred to here as the ark of God. So, 
Um, beginning in verse nine, we see the change begin to happen. David feared the Lord that day. By the way, Saul uh, acts rashly and seems to be afraid of many things. Goliath, the Philistines, responsibility, Samuel. Um, but the text never says that he feared the Lord. This is one of the big key differences between David and Saul. Saul is afraid of everything, but didn't fear the Lord. David fears the Lord and so fears nothing else. So that's a big change that we see in the story right away is that David feared the Lord. Let's see what else he does. So he's not willing to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And so he sends it to Obed-Edom of Gath. Now that's interesting because Gath is a Philistine city and uh, Obed-Edom means servant of Edom. Edom, of course, is another name for Esau, Jacob's twin, who is not part of the house of Israel. So in all likelihood, by multiple declarations, the person who takes care of the ark now is once again, not an Israelite. Um, David says, you know what? If this is going to be killing people, let's have it kill not an Israelite. And we'll send it to Obed-Edom's house. So going back to the text. Uh, verse 12. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. So uh, you can see David is a little uh, jealous <laughs> that the pagan, that the Philistine or the Edomite or whatever the background of this, this man is, um, we can see that uh, God's uh, treating him well, which again, uh, in the same way that uh, God didn't strike the Philistines dead for the things that they did with the ark, um, he caused a, the, the, quote, tumors, he, he caused the, um, the, 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 pestilence in the in the crops and all that. So there was definitely a punishment going on, but it was a warning. He didn't straight up kill them all. He, he warned them. He had a different standard for those who were not yet believers, who were not yet disciples, who were not yet part of his kingdom. But for those who are in his kingdom, he has a much higher standard. Yeah, there's a double standard. It's a tighter standard for those who say they trust and follow the Lord. So everything went well with Obed-Edom. So David goes and gets uh, the ark. And it says it was uh, brought from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. And David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she says. Um, this very ironically, of course. 
He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. Um, clearly, we just read David was wearing the linen ephod, so he wasn't totally naked. Um, but she's being hyperbolic here. David replied to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will dance before the Lord, and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter Michael had no child to the day of her death. So what we see here is we see an entirely different demeanor in David after the Lord kills Uzzah. Let's go back and, and, and look at some of the specifics here. So in verse 12, it says, uh, David went and had the ark brought up from Obed-Zedem house to the city of David with rejoicing. And in verse 13, it says, when those carrying the ark of the Lord, right? Not the cart that the ark of the Lord was on, when those carrying the ark of the Lord. You see now how they're obeying what the Lord has asked them to do from step one. In fact, if you look at this over in 1 Chronicles 15, you will see um, this um, same story. And uh, let's just go there and, and, and scrub through that just real quick. So this is 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Most of the book of Chronicles is parallel to a lot of the book of Kings. But in the beginning of Chronicles here, it talks a little bit about uh, David and some other things that happened before the book of Kings. And so you'll see David built uh, houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. So here you see David becomes aware that only Levites can do that. And so now you see the whole assembly uh, that he gets here and they appoint relatives of singers and uh, a bunch of names. Again, this is Chronicles. So this is chronicling a lot of the history and those sorts of things. Now we get down to verse 25. David, the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went with rejoicing to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom. Because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with God's help, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams, which we just read about. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Now David was dressed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, as well as the singers, uh, etc. Uh, and so uh, Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, the sounds of the ram's horn, uh, etc. So a lot of the same things going on there. But what you see over and over again is this idea that they are carrying the ark that Levites in particular are carrying the ark, something that we did not get a picture of as happening in um, the uh, in, here in Samuel chapter 6. Um, I'm not sure. I think even Uzzah is from the house of Judah, I think. Um, but uh, so what we see is that we see that David, after he, the Lord strikes Uzzah dead, David remembers who this is about. He fears the Lord. This isn't about David becoming king. This is about the Lord being king over his people. So though some of it may look the same, they're still dancing and they're still rejoicing and it's still festive. Okay, it's not it's not morose all of a sudden. Just, just because it's reverent doesn't mean it's morose. I mean, you've been to some churches, no doubt, where you walk in and you go, yeah, who died? You know, and people are like, well, it's Jesus. 
Yeah, but didn't he live again? I mean, isn't that why we're all here, right? So it should be uh, a celebration. It should be uh, wonderful. Dancing, uh, you know, in an appropriate context is, is a good thing to do. Uh, I read an article earlier today that said, you know, maybe, you know, it doesn't mean that we have a, a ballet performance during church while we all sit there and watch. And it doesn't mean that uh, we're all dancing every service or something like that. But if uh, a new leader over China uh, came and suddenly announced that Christianity was legal and people could worship Christ openly in public, don't you think the Chinese Christians would shout and dance and rejoice? And would any of us have a problem with that? And that's what we see David doing here. So it is a change in perspective and it is out of fear of the Lord and it is reverent, even though it still is rejoicing and boisterous and there's still music. Um, but it's not uh, carousing music. It's the, sh the ram's horns and the shouts of people's voices. It's things that have been associated with the temple for some time. And David is not coming in now as king. He's coming in. Michael describes him undressed like a vulgar person. David is not coming in as a king. He's coming in humble. And the only thing he's wearing is the priest's ephod. Now, David is from the king of Judah. He's not a Levite. He's not a priest himself, but he is the Lord's anointed. And he does point to uh, Jesus, someone who reigns in like the order of Melchizedek, someone who is both priest and king, the way that Melchizedek was priest and king of, what town was that? Oh, it was a little town called Salem, now known as Jerusalem. And so uh, David wears the ephod to say, this is about service to the Lord. This is not about me being king. And so uh, now it's a holy event and not a military celebration. Now, one last thing here in verse 13, it says, when those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, take you back to the text here. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. In Chronicles, it says they sacrificed uh, seven of each, I believe is what it said. And so the picture that we get here, it's a little hard to decipher, and there's a couple of different camps on how to interpret this. One way of interpreting it is to sort of take it on face value in English, that it means they brought the ark out of the house, and after it had gone six steps and nobody died, okay, we're good. They offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and then they proceed on to Jerusalem. That alone shows deference to the Lord, reverence to the Lord, thanks to the Lord, worship to the Lord, holiness, right? It shows all those things if that alone were it. I tend to subscribe to the other belief in this passage where there is, uh, it's a, the way the verb is used in Hebrew, that it could mean this way. Not a lot of people think that it means this, but it could mean this. Um, when it says that when the ark had advanced six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. A lot of people, some people think that means uh, every six steps, they stop and offered a sacrifice. Now, if that's the case, think about what this means. What is six steps? Well, six paces, that's what, about 18 feet, right? How long are the tent pole? How long are the poles on the Ark of the Covenant? If I remember, they're, they're about 10 feet, right? So if you walk, uh, if you have, a, you walk six paces, right? And then you sacrifice, make a sacrifice and an offering over the next 
you know, right there in the front. What, what are you doing? You are making that ground holy with, with the blood of those sacrifices. By making the, doing those offerings, you're saying this ground is now holy. It's consecrated for the Lord the same way that the blood on the, on the, the altar and the implements and the ark itself, when they were first consecrated back in the Torah, in the same way that the, the blood was, was sprayed on, onto uh, Aaron and, and Nadab and Abihu to be the high priests and the priest. The way that that blood consecrated them and made them holy, what these sacrifices might be doing is saying this ground is now holy, this ground covered by the sacrifice. And so they take 18, they take six steps, they go about uh, 15, 18 feet, right? And what have they done? They've moved the ark now onto that holy ground. And then they sacrifice again and they make the next piece of ground holy and they move another six steps onto that. Now, it seems very impractical to do all these sacrifices all the way from Kiriath Jerem all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, it's not that far to look at it on a map, but if you're stopping every 18 feet and doing a complete sacrifice worship ritual, it might take a while. So whether that's literally what happened or not, that seems to be the picture that the scripture is trying to uh, point to. Again, notice back here in First Chronicles 15, um, in verse 26, it says, because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with God's help, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. So uh, clearly there was lots of sacrifices that were going on more than uh, a single a sacrifice. So the picture that seems to be uh, being painted here is this. Extreme holiness, extreme reverence, extreme worship, still rejoicing, still music. Still uh, shouting and dancing and joy, but it's in fear of the Lord. It's in holiness to the Lord. It's not because of uh, what David was achieving. So how do we bring this into present day? First, I would say if you uh, had the story of Uzzah used as a yardstick against you to uh, wrap your knuckles for every little mistake that you do, um, there are so many scriptures about the grace of God, about his patience, about his forgiveness, about how Christians grow, uh, about forgiveness that is there for us and that is offered, about the joy uh, and the blessings uh, and being a part of the family of God. Uh, I would recommend reading a lot of those scriptures and uh, have that fine-tune the theology you've been handed a little bit. But the other thing I would say is, is this. Let's look at the two stories here. One was all about David, and the second one was all about the Lord. That's really the takeaway from this story, and let's hope it doesn't take the Lord striking a person dead or striking something dead in us to be able to learn this lesson. Uh, even our faith, many times we make about ourselves. Uh, what's the goal? Well, to go to heaven. Was well, that the goal? If that's the goal, then your faith may be more about you than it is about the Lord. Maybe the goal is to be loved by God and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others, to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, isn't that what Scripture says is the goal? Isn't that what Jesus says is the goal? Isn't that what the, even the teachers of the law, for all their faults, isn't that what they recognize is the goal of faith? So if our goal of faith is to get into heaven, then we're still in the first part of this story, and we might need a big shock to our system. We might need something to be killed in us. We might need something in us to drop dead so that we can be humbled and so that we can learn to live in the fear of the Lord. 
So what does it look like to live in fear of the Lord instead of in celebration of ourselves? It means that our whole life is on borrowed time. It means that at our baptism, we really died. And who lives in us now is Jesus. Um, it means that our life is no longer ours, right? Um, the life that I now live in the flesh, etc. That we take that at face value for what it means. That we, at our baptism, it was more than a metaphor. We really died when we went under that water. And what came out was somebody living on borrowed time. And it's all God's time for him to do with as he wishes. And so um, we can still live in freedom and we can still have a fun life. And we can still live in joy and we can still enjoy the things that life has to offer. And we can still love pizza and classic cars and all these other things. We can still have all these enjoyments, but we're doing them because we love the Lord and we're sharing them because we love our neighbor as ourself. And anything that comes between us and our love for the Lord is something that needs to die and is something that needs to go away, no matter how painful it is, no matter how angry it makes us. Remember, David becomes angry that Uzzah died. And it doesn't really say who he was angry at, but I wonder if he was angry at himself because the Lord broke out against Uzzah. Maybe David understood this death was my fault because I did not fear the Lord in what we were doing. So if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, time does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And what is your goal? Your goal is to trust and follow Jesus, to be loved by God, to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others, uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. When you're doing those things, then you're living in fear of the Lord, and you will live a humble life, and you won't care what other people think, and uh, you will live a life of joy and dancing. That's the life I want you to have, and it's the life that Jesus offers in his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.